The Way Out Podcast, episode 214. My name is Holly Wilson. Today, own a substance abuse treatment program for women, um, but have come a long way from, you know, just being another alcoholic. I mean, I still am that, um, but, you know, had to dig back and build up from scratch as we all do once we kind of hit our bottom. My parents got divorced when I was really young. Mm. And um, so my mom moved to Crested Butte, Colorado. And at the time it was about 1500 people in the town. Um, so that was, it was a little rocky. You know, I had had some difficulties in that transition. Uh, a lot of my early childhood trauma kind of happened in that time. The perfectionism, even though that did work for some time for me, then, because I took it to an extreme, it started to hurt me. And then the, then I went to the next maladaptive coping skill, which at that time for me, I think it was around the time I was a teenager, I started you know, self-harming before I ever picked up a drink or a drug because part of what the perfectionism did for me was, I have to be the good girl, you know? I can't start partying. I am the captain of the volleyball team. I'm the captain of the basketball team. I'm the star of the dance recital. I have straight A's, like I can't go that route. Then people won't think I'm a good girl anymore. In February of 2008, he died in a, you know, a freak accident back here in the States. And that for me is was the ultimate trauma. I think that um, losing him and, and being so unprepared for it, um, that my coping skill at that point was alcohol. Losing him so unexpectedly, um, you know, I used the justification in my mind of like, well, he wouldn't want me to be sad. He would want me to be celebrating his life. And so me and, you know, our family and all the sisters, that's kind of what I chose, how I chose to look at it was like, you know, this is what he would have wanted. He would have wanted us to be drinking. He would have wanted us to be partying. This is honoring him. Yeah, yeah, right? It's what he would have wanted. And and so for the first, like, you know, week, I think most people were kind of on board with me in that. But gradually, everybody kind of started returning to their lives. They go back to their job. They flew back to their hometown or whatever. And I just could not move forward. But by the last year of my drinking, I was drinking to get out of bed. I had a bottle in my bed. I had a bottle in my shower. Um, I was drinking all throughout the day, so my baseline was very high. And that's one of the yets, right? It's as, yes. as long as I'm not drinking every morning, but I was, I was drinking every morning um, to be able to be normal. Um, and at that point, you know, I was using Adderall on a re regular basis too, just to support my drinking. Anything else that I did was always to support my drinking. I learned how to fashion all these other substances to support my drinking. I don't know what exactly happened, but I was in a hotel on the Sunset Strip and it was like a voice from outside kind of came to me and said, you know, God wants more for you in your life than this. All of a sudden, it just like, I could see everything clearly that I had been in denial about for so long. I had seen, I started to see my part in the friendships that I had lost instead of, you know, the position that I held for so long that they were messed up and I was right and they were wrong and it's, it's just like something clicked for me that this wasn't working anymore and I realized that I wasn't going to stop because my my using just continued to progress into harder drugs more time using more liquor like more 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 
And in my life, I was living it less and less. Everything just kind of lined up and I knew I needed help. And luckily, I did have a friend who was sober and in the program and she'd been sober, I think about five years at that point. And I had remembered seeing her at a music festival a couple of years before that and her saying to me then like, hey, if you ever want help with your drinking, like I'm here for you. My expectation of going to treatment was that I was going to quit drinking for a couple months and I was gonna get really healthy, get great shape, eat good food, and then I would be able to go back and drink like a lady. It was very humbling to realize how messed up my head was because I didn't recognize that. You know, I just was too busy just going through all the motions. And so when about 25 days into it, they're like, yeah, we're gonna recommend that you stay for another 30 days. <laughs> days. And I was like, ugh. But they, I had started to just hear some like little nuggets of truth. I just decided in that moment, I was like, if I'm gonna do this sobriety thing, I'm gonna do what they're telling me to do. Because if I do everything that they're saying, when it doesn't work for me, I never have to do this again. That was fully what I was convinced of. So I was like, okay, I'll say another 30 days. And that's when like the real work started for me because I was finally mentally more clear. So I could start doing some more of the work and I'm grateful to the place where my friend Diana sent me because they did really deep clinical work and that is not the case with every treatment center. And the truth is, is it was in a 12 step meeting around the time I was nine months sober that I heard somebody talk about their childhood trauma and they talked about it so openly in front of like, you know, over a hundred people. Mm. And they just were like, you know, yeah, this happened to me and this is something I, I have to work on in my recovery. And I was like, and something just clicked for me. I don't know about all this God business, but I do believe in the Native American idea of great spirit in the Star Wars concept of the force. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. 
Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we've got Holly Wilson, a woman in long-term recovery and the founder of Women's Recovery, a treatment center and recovery center for women. Holly shares her story and journey through alcoholism and into long-term recovery openly, honestly, and with a singular goal, that her story might inspire others to seek and achieve enduring and meaningful recovery. From early childhood trauma and battles with perfectionism, overachieving, and self-harm, to a bona fide battle with alcoholism and a profound moment of clarity, followed by honest and transformational work embodied in the 12 steps, Holly's story indeed has it all. Without question, she's an absolute treasure. And talking recovery with a dynamo like Holly makes for tremendous recovery radio. So listen up. Holly Wilson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on The Way Out podcast. I can't wait to dig into your story and have you share your experience, strength, and hope with us and our audience. Before we get into that, please take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about who you are and we'll get into your story. Okay, sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, Chuckles. Uh, I'm happy to be here today. Um, My name is Holly Wilson. Um, I live in a suburb of Denver, Colorado, and, uh, you know, I now today own a substance abuse treatment program for women, um, but have come a long way from, you know, just being another alcoholic. I mean, I still am that, um, but, you know, had to dig back and build up from scratch as we all do once we kind of hit our bottom. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a native from Colorado. I grew up in a small town. And uh, now I live in the big city of Denver, made a little pit stop to L.A., and, and here we are today. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, growing up in a small town in Colorado. Tell me a little bit about that and what it was like for you growing up. Oh, yeah, that was, that was tough. Um, I have to say, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was really young, mm. and um, so my mom moved to Crested Butte, Colorado, and at the time, it was about 1,500 people in the town, um, so that was, it was a little rocky, you know, I had had some difficulties in that transition, uh, a lot of my early childhood trauma kind of happened in that time, uh, and then I moved to this tiny little town, um, and part of, you know, what I did to feel a sense of control in my life because things were already unmanageable at an early age was be very like perfectionistic Mm. and have everything be just so. And then on top of it, you know, everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows who your parents are and what you do and you know, how many times a day you're riding down the street. So 
um, there were good aspects and uh, really challenging aspects, I think, of growing up in a place that was that small. You very early in life experienced something that's wildly out of your control that really rocks your world in a divorce and having to move and experiencing that trauma and that emotional upheaval and then start to practice that, that all too familiar perfectionism that so many of us are well uh, intimate with in terms of trying to master everything else in our lives because this big, big, big thing is out of our control, right? Right. And we don't, I don't think anybody realizes that they're doing that, especially when you're a young kid, you know, yeah. you just um, are labeled as rigid. You know, I took to my studies, I was a straight A student, you know, everything in my room had to be just so. And so if someone came in and moved something like I knew, I was like, that <laughs> label was not facing that way when I left, you know, because I always have everything just like that. And, you know, of course, it wasn't until later on and stepping into recovery that I started to look back and recognize some of those behaviors as a means of trying to control things because my life had gotten so out of control as a kid. And, you know, I was parentified at a very young age at age five or younger even. Um, but that's what I remember. And, um, and feeling like somehow that just alleviated my anxiety to have things and have me know where things were and how it was going to be and to be an achiever and that I could produce things and I could have control over the outcome of things. So I put a lot of stock into that. It was a coping strategy, but we don't understand those things while we're going through it often and only if we're fortunate enough to do the work of recovery do we get the gift of understanding this stuff in hindsight and backwards and right. starting to put some of those pieces together and, and then understanding if those things serve us anymore, right? Things right. that maybe got us through some perfectionist stuff or, you know, I often think your drugs and alcohol, right? Got me through some, some really, really difficult periods in my life. Uh, and, and obviously, at the end, they stopped serving me, just like some of these, um, some of these other coping strategies that might have been. Um, I think the psychologists might call it maladaptive. That's right, maladaptive coping skills. And we, and for me, it was like I I rested on one and I maximized it to the extreme because that's how I'm wired. Is like I'm gonna go until I can like can't do any more. So if this is if this feels good, I want it to feel the best. So I'm just going to push it to the limit. But then, of course, because it's maladaptive, it's not a long-term solution. So then, eventually, the wheels came off of that piece. The perfectionism, even though that did work for some time for me, then because I took it to an extreme, it started to hurt me. And then the then I went to the next maladaptive coping skill, which at that time for me, I think it was around the time I was a teenager. I started, you know, self-harming before I ever picked up a drink or a drug because part of what the perfectionism did for me was I have to be the good girl, you know. I can't start partying. I am the captain of the volleyball team. I'm the captain of the basketball team. I'm the star of the dance recital. I have straight A's. Like, I can't go that route. Then people won't think I'm a good girl anymore. So... I, what else could I do? Because the getting the good grades, being the, you know, top of this or that or the other wasn't enough. So then I had to have some other outlet. 
And so then it went into self-harm and, you know, this was back in the day. That was a very organic thing. I didn't have any type of like a social media where other kids my age were cutting or, right. you know, like it happened for me just naturally. Like that's how I thought in my mind I could get some relief that way. And it actually started with the idea of like, I don't want to live anymore. I want to kill myself. Uh. And this is at age 15. And what I know now about myself is it's some, it's an early childhood trauma. And there are other things that I won't mention because they're, you know, very specific and I don't want to trigger anybody, Mm. but things that happened to me in my childhood that I wasn't capable with my mental maturity or, you know, the tools that I had to cope with of even consciously addressing those issues yet in my life. So there were things in my subconscious that were hurting me without my recognition at the time. So, so that was, that's how it started, but just having the feeling of self harm that gave me some kind of relief. And of course that's not safe, not healthy, you know, family caught on to it pretty quickly. And I actually did start getting into therapy and that was really helpful for me uh, at age 15 to start seeing an individual therapist. So that was, that was kind of my first introduction to some wellness. I think yeah. some healthy coping skills. The achievement and the perfectionism no longer was serving you. It wasn't enough, right? And often oh, it was hurting me. It was right. piling on at that point. It was making it worse. <laughs> more stress, more anxiety, and making you less well. And I find it so, so instructive, Holly, that you talk about the self-harm in a time when it could not have been learned from somebody else, that, that, that this happened so organically, which whether you uh, learn this kind of behavior from something else or whether it's organic, it's, it is um, uh, such a, uh, a display of inner pain, right? Um, and uh, uh, some good comes out of it ultimately because uh, uh, family uh, takes notice and you're able to engage in some therapy. How did that therapy work for you? Were, do you feel like at that time you were ready for it? Where were you at uh, oh. uh, from, a, from a process perspective? It was uh, an instant relief. And I've got to say, you know, I want, I want to make it clear that that – um, the, though the self-harm, you know, it felt like a relief in the moment. Again, it was not providing me any kind of real relief. And I want to make it clear, you know, to anybody listening that it is a very unhealthy and unsafe thing to do. And there are much better ways. Um, but I do think it's important to bring it up because I think these days, especially, um, there can be a real connotation of like, oh, that's attention seeking and this, that, and the other. And honestly, it doesn't matter. Even if it is attention seeking, that is a very clear sign that someone's hurting and they need additional support. Um, So for me, going and seeing a therapist, it was from the very first, you know, 20 minutes. I think I had, you know, that wall up, but it was a pretty paper thin wall, right? Because honestly, in the inside, I was screaming for help like for years now. So it was kind of like, you know, this little bit of a tough front of like, I don't need this. Um, but my therapist, she was a wonderful woman. Um, and the, almost the very first thing that she did was help me recognize how much power I did have in my life. 
Mm. that I wasn't seeing. And I think especially as a young kid, you know, you just feel like such a victim of your circumstances. It's like, what can I do? I'm just a kid and I'm here and this is my situation. And she's like, you can get F's in school. You could run away if you wanted to, which I mean, I tell people that and they're like horrified. But for someone <laughs> as rigid as me, like I, I think I needed to hear that. You know, I'm, I never would have been the type to run away. But having someone help me recognize that like I had all these social constructs that led me to believe I was this prisoner, um, that just, it wasn't actually a fact. And that I had a lot of autonomy, if not all the autonomy over my life uh, without really recognizing it. So I, I, it was incredibly empowering. Um, and I do think it was so helpful, but again, you know, that was just kind of giving me the fundamental tools, which again, helped for a time. Um, but I never, I wasn't at the point yet to get to the more deeper rooted things. So even though that I think it, you know, it eliminated the self harm, it certainly mitigated a ton of the stress that I felt of being a perfectionist. Um, you know, that was at age 15 and I had a really great high school experience after that, including still not picking up substances, still getting great grades, still participating in a bunch of activities, but feeling, um, more empowered to be myself, more, a little more comfortable in my skin. Um, but I, again, it just kind of peeled off the first layer or two when I had a lot more digging to do. And since I felt that kind of instant relief, like I'm sure we all can relate, I was like, oh, I'm good now. Yeah, right. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for great. all you've done. This is super. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm, now I'm fixed and good to go and yeah. Uh, sure. rock and roll. Yeah. Holly, tell me a little bit about um, the self-heart was there a shame cycle in that like uh, I think many of us can relate to in active addiction that shame cycle right where we engage in that behavior that we know is not good for us it provides that temporary temporary relief that I think nothing else can provide that I've not been able to experience in any other way right and it relieves me from this you know, constant pain and anxiety and all of the other things that you know, I can't tolerate any longer. So I engage in that behavior. It offers that relief. But then immediately after I get that, sh that, that toxic shame. Is that that same cycle in self-harm? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, a very similar process yeah. in my mind, uh, yeah. or at least from my experience. And I can't speak to everybody's experience. But but yeah, it was very private. I kept it to myself. Um, but also, you know, it's harder for me to say because that was a very, very short-lived uh, uh, experience for me. It was only, you know, a couple of times that it really got to that point. And for me, it was because I was so full of trauma, unresolved trauma and rage that that felt like the only thing that kind of made sense. So it was very desperate and, you know, I think that was a point of desperation that I don't even know I got to at any other points in, in my life. So uh, it's, it's similar and it's also a little bit different. You know, I, I don't think I didn't have the kind of consequences that I did when I was drinking, which, you know, we'll fast forward to that part that were around the cutting, you know, and again, it was immediate intervention. I think it's much uh, more black and white of like, no one should be doing that. Right. Whereas for drinking, it's like, oh, is she okay? Is she not? Is she just being, a, <laughs> you know, 
a raging psycho today, but tomorrow she'll be drinking, you know? So it's a little, it was a little bit different. And I think, um, I think again with drinking, I had so much more denial around it with, whereas with the cutting, it was like very evident that I was just not okay. So let's talk about that. When is the first time you drank and what was that experience like for you? Was it a memorable experience? Yeah, I mean, I the first time I drank um, intentionally, I accidentally got drunk once when I was in, 13 in Mexico with my dad and like somebody spiked my Coke in Mexico, like a server, but whatever. Um, I, I think I was like, it was going into my freshman year of high school. So I think I was like 14 and I just did it with one other girl and it was fun, but I was just like, I don't can't get in trouble. Like that was fun, but I can't do that kind of a thing. So it wasn't like in high school, drinking wasn't really the thing for me. I, I cut loose a few times. I did have a semester abroad in Italy, my junior year of high school. And I would tie a few back then cause it, you know, it was legal and you know, most of my friends, we would go out to like the disco, but they wouldn't drink. But and I would drink, and right away they were like American alcoholic, and I was like, I'm having like a warm beer. But I still, it wasn't really then. It wasn't until um, I ended up going to see you in Boulder that drinking in me like became this amazing union in my mind because I was finally out of my little fishbowl. Yeah. And I had this anonymity that I had never experienced in my life where I could walk across campus and like smoke a cigarette and nobody would tell my mom, you know, it's like nobody knew me. I didn't know anybody. And coming from a place where everybody knows everything about you and your family, it felt like I finally had that freedom. And that's when I got to really enjoy my drinking and, and completely let loose with it instead of still trying to like, control and control who knew and making sure I didn't get in trouble, um, get kicked off the volleyball team. It was like, here we go. I have nothing left to lose. I'm in college. Like I'm at the, you know, I'm at the end zone here. I don't have to even get good grades in college. And that's when my standards started dropping to justify the way I was drinking. Right. So very mm -hmm. first semester, I was like, oh, I can drink every weekend. I can, you know, and then it went to, oh, well, there's a party on Tuesday. And of course, there's Thursday, Thursday. And <laughs> my second semester, um, I was there on a full academic scholarship. By second semester, I was on academic probation. I had stopped showing up to my classes. I was like, oh, this is easy. This school's so big. Nobody even knows if I'm in class. Uh, I was drinking almost every night. Um, so for me, it was like immediately I went from one extreme to the other. Which so many of us could relate to in terms of extremes for sure. But you have this newfound agency. Yeah. And you're able to really reinvent yourself in large measure because you're not feeling constrained by the small town, living with a family having to sort of live up to a, 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 a yardstick that you'd really set for yourself, right? And sort of broke out of that proverbial prison and being able to sort of be somebody completely different. I can so relate, and so many of us, I think, can with this move, this line in the sand that we're not going to cross. Well, it's all fine as long as I don't drink 
on a weekday, right? It's all fine until, right? And we keep moving that goalpost to match our behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of a saying that, said, that, that read something on the order of, I knew I had a problem when I could no longer lower my standards enough to match my behavior. Right. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, normal drinkers, quote unquote, they match their drinking to meet their standards, right? right? So if they start to notice that there are things that they're not achieving or things that are, they're having consequences that are unintended in their lives, then they're like, oh, I got to tighten up. Whereas, you know, maybe for us problem drinkers, we kind of do the opposite and we're like, yeah, it wasn't really that important to me anyway. We can just justify it like that so easily in our minds. Did you, did you feel like at that time or did you notice that you drank differently than other people when you started drinking in this way in college? Were you cognizant that your drinking was different than others? Oh, absolutely. And I like, I took such great pride in it too. Like, So first of all, one of the things that I noticed about myself right away is the way that I could drink was very, um, so I went to CU, I always make this joke that when I went to CU as a freshman, um, then the next year when I was a sophomore, they named it the number one party school in the country. (laughs) (laughs) Coincidence? I don't know. Tell me. You're welcome. You're welcome, Colorado. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm happy to bring that pride to my state. But uh, no, I think there there was a whole culture around drinking, right? So drinking games. And, and that was something where I was like, I can do this and I can do it well. And I can drink guys under the table and I can beat guys and flip cup. Like whoever was the like tank, I would pride myself in going like drink for drink with whoever could drink the most. And so I, uh, you know, and now knowing what I know is that just because I can drink like a guy doesn't mean that what's going to happen to my body will be the same thing that happens. So I've definitely pushed myself in very dangerous ways. And, it, you know, there are people who are kind of biology deniers, but the truth is, is if you look at the biology of a male and a female, it we're made differently. Right. And so there's, um, now I know and we talk about this all the time with the women in our program, there's something called the telescoping effect, which means that for women, our alcohol will exponentially harm our body more so than men. And one of the primary reasons is because we have a higher fat composition naturally. So it is retained in our fat. And so it continues to wreak havoc on our internal organs. And that's part of the reason why you don't see as many old female alcoholics as you do males uh, in recovery because they die. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is the first time I've heard that kind of information. And I think that's so instructive for our listeners to understand is the biological difference between the way men metabolize alcohol versus how women metabolize alcohol and the um, the damage that it can do to our bodies. I can relate so intimately, Holly, with what I what I call the junkie pride, right? Where I can drink you under the table, kind of, you know. And I attached a lot of pride. I can. Uh, I, I very much remember the first time I drank. I got so drunk that 
they actually had to put me in a dog kennel because I was so wild and out of control. I was just absolutely, I was just, went completely bonkers, right? I and can had, see that about you, Chuckle. <laughs> I can totally see it. <laughs> and I'm in this dog kennel because it's the only thing that they can contain me in. Mm-hmm. And they come check on me. And I'm not breathing. And my lips are blue. And I am dying of alcohol poisoning. And my best friend somehow, and I still don't know how he did it to this day, but somehow was able to do chest compressions and, and, and bring me back to life. And I don't remember any of this because I'm in a complete blackout. Wow. I got to tell you, though, Holly, I used that. I mean, you might be the captain of the football team, but I fucking died and came back to life. Okay. <laughs> that is a new one. Right. That takes the cake. Right. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, that was, that was the party. Charlie's here. Yeah. Now let's yeah. go. You know let's what that go. means. That's right. So, so that for me was, was a very, but it was a very unhealthy, very, very detrimental pride attached to the way that I could drink and the way that I could, you know, um, quote unquote party. Right. And, you know, those kinds of behaviors and that kind of pride that I attached to my use, uh, drinking and, and drugs really, um, um, served me. Um, uh, it was, as we would say, maladaptive, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, I got, I got a lot of like, I feel like social cred from that. But I also think for me, it was a little bit deeper than that. You know, there was some way that I realized that I was inflicting this great harm on myself. Mm. And again, it was almost like a relief of like, mm. you fucking deserve that. Sorry for that. Yeah. But it's like, that's <laughs> what you deserve. Like you deserve to be punished in this way somehow. Although, like I said, there was nothing conscious about that. It was a very like- uh, Subconscious. Self-harm. Yeah. So how does that progress? How does your drinking progress through college? Um, So that was a time where, you know, once I hit the academic probation, it was a consequence that I was confronted with where I did recognize, oh wow, I am partying too much. I need to turn it this around because I can't lose this. I mean, my family growing up didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and so I had always been told like, you've got to get a scholarship because we're not paying for your college. And I did. And I was like, Oh, I'm about to blow this. Like yeah. I've got to get a degree. So I was able to pull it back. And that was kind of the rest of the college experience for me was trying to find that balance of like, doing the bare minimum that I could in school to be able to still drink in the way that I wanted to be able to drink. And that was ultimately the priority. I like to say I majored in drinking and minored in the rest of school. So So you were functioning, you were able to uh, continue to drink and function to the extent that you were able to keep your scholarship and graduate. Yep, and I was able to graduate and, you know, even then I was able to always kind of scale it back and, you know, I started dabbling in other kinds of substances in college, but it was always drinking for me. Like, I mean, really till the end of it. Um, but it wasn't until a, a couple of years after college, uh, that my stepbrother who was the same age as me and he had, when I went off to see you as a freshman, he went off and started fighting, Uh, the war in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and then later went and served in Iraq. 
And then he came back and um, we were getting ready to move into an apartment together. We'd been away all this time and, you know, I've been praying for him every day and he came back safely. And then, you know, in February of 2008, he died in a, you know, a freak accident back here in the States. And that for me is, was the ultimate trauma. I think that, um, losing him and being so unprepared for it, um, that my coping skill at that point was alcohol. And so losing him, uh, and he and I were drinking buddies, right? I would order my Jack on the rocks and he would order his, um, Jaeger bomb and, you know, we'd go to town. Sometimes I would order that for him cause he was embarrassed that I drank a manlier drink than him. And then we'd switch. But, uh, but yeah, losing him so unexpectedly, um, you know, I used the justification in my mind of like, well, he wouldn't want me to be sad. He would want me to be celebrating his life. And so me and, you know, our family and all the sisters, that's kind of what I chose, how I chose to look at it was like, you know, this is what he would have wanted. He would have wanted us to be drinking. He would have wanted us to be partying. This is honoring him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's what he would have wanted. And, and so for the first like, you know, week, I think most people were kind of on board with me in that, but gradually everybody kind of started returning to their lives. They go back to their job. They flew back to their hometown or whatever. And I just could not move forward. I stopped going to my job. Uh, I stopped getting out of bed. Um, I lived in downtown, which back then was super cheap. <laughs> it's not anymore. Uh, and there was a, a liquor store actually in my building. So I would just walk in my pajamas to the liquor store, get a bottle, and then go back to bed. Yeah. And I just stayed in, you know, in my room there watching his bootleg Sopranos DVDs he'd gotten over in Iraq and, um, I just kept drinking and drinking. And I think I ultimately would have drinking myself to death if my friends hadn't come over and intervened um, because they knew they kept trying to get me out and I wouldn't do it. And so they just like showed up at my house and you know, my friends were like, we're having an intervention. And I was like, Oh great. But luckily it wasn't the kind of intervention we think my best friend, she slapped a stack of hundred dollar bills and she's in front of me and was like, we're going to diamond cabaret. I was like, I'm in, that's my kind of intervention. So I think their main point was like, just get her, get her out, out of this house. And so that helped. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, my sister who was living in LA, she said, well, why don't you just move out here? We have this extra apartment you can just stay in while you get your feet on the ground. You just need a change of scenery. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yeah, that's what I need, a change of scenery. So How old were you, Holly, when your stepbrother passed? Uh, I was 25 okay. or 24. Okay. And so um, then I moved out to LA, but by that time I was a daily drinker. You know, I, I heard the expression like once a pickle's turned into a cucumber, it can't go back to a pickle. Like I was a pickle, you know, I that switch had been flipped. Um, I had every excuse always to find a way to drink in a socially acceptable way every day. Um, and I did that for a time and I got a job and, you know, I barely held it together for a few years like that. I think after even the first year, you know, I started to recognize that I was drinking a lot and I had some social consequences with family. And I even went as far as to go to a meeting 
um, in West Hollywood where I lived. And I get to this meeting um, and then all of these people are talking about, you know, well, you know, I lost my job and then I went drinking and I woke up on a beach and it had been seven days and I didn't remember anything and I was naked and I had a hitchhike home. And then this other person was saying, you know, uh, about going to jail and DUIs. And I kept hearing all these like really intense stories and really low bottom type of stories. And so I took that to mean, oh, that's what an alcoholic looks mm -hmm. like. So I must be fine because I have my job. I have a place to live. Like I have gotten in no legal trouble. So I'm fine. So I left and I didn't know enough at the time of what I could listen for because I was just focused on the differences. Right. And so I said, that's not me. I'm good. And so what I did was kept doing what I was doing. And then of course things just continued to get worse for my life and the consequences kept stacking up. Somebody once told me after getting into recovery that those things that I have not done or have not experienced are my not yet's, <laughs> which really put that in some pretty meaningful context for me when I start getting into that space. Well, that doesn't happen to me yet. I must be, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not really alcoholic after all. Maybe it was just a phase, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I can tell you that some of those yets I had in that time, they certainly came to pass not too long after that. So, so I mean, I still held a job. You know, I was lucky I had a job that I didn't actually have to work that hard and I could drink and nobody really noticed. Um, but of course, uh, again, it was mostly social consequences for me. I hurt people that I really, really loved and kept mm. getting into fights. I was a very angry person. Mm. And that came from my early childhood years. And it was how I felt. I felt that rage when I got to the point of wanting to cut myself um, in self-harm. I felt that rage and it would come out when I was drinking because my inhibitions were lowered. So I would see a guy like grab a girl's butt in the bar and I would go over and like can club him in the temple. And I'm like, this girl, like again, self-destructive behavior, like I shouldn't be going and starting a physical fight with some guy who probably could paralyze me, but that's what I did. And it was like, I had to get that outside of me. And so again, the consequences kept piling up and piling up. And did you view yourself as an angry person though? Oh, no. Yeah, right? I can, no. so I can so relate to that, Holly, because I, too, was a very angry person, but I never, I did not view myself that way. And when somebody would say it to me, I, I, I think, what are you talking about? Right. What are you, uh, w w are you, me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that, that's how it worked for me, too, right? Because the way that I viewed anger, and that came from my childhood and some of my trauma, is that anger was an unacceptable emotion for me. And I think women are also socialized on top of that, that we shouldn't be angry. We should be submissive. We should be nice. We should be good, you know? And so for me, when I felt anger come up in an organic way, which anger is a healthy mm. emotion to experience, and it, there is an appropriate use for your anger. But instead of expressing it or feeling it or even identifying with it, with the anger, I became so accustomed from a very young age to just repress it, right? But the problem with any emotion is when you just stuff it down, 
it's still there. Mm. So that's how rage came to be a, a fixture in my life was that I just suppressed all the anger yeah. that I would feel. And then it just ended up being up to here all the mm. time. So whenever I would put my guard down just a little bit, blah, it came out sideways at anybody for anything. And, you know, as we talk about in recovery, like resentment is the number one offender. We just don't recognize that that's really what it is, is that not only am I already full of justifiable anger, I am also full of all sorts of unjustifiable anger about things I can't control, people I can't control, situations I can't control, and that makes me mad. But when I'm sober, I'm not a mad person. I'm a nice person. So I can't, I can't look at that. I can't express it. I can't even like identify with that. And then as soon as I can flip over here to Mr. Hyde, well, it's all coming out whether you deserve it or not. The idea that you're dealing with this rage isn't really that surprising based on the trauma that you experienced earlier in childhood and 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 not really being able to uh, get a lot of coping to, t- tools to deal with that stuff and then the profound grief that comes with losing somebody so close to you while in active drinking right and you you don't have those tools right to be able to really deal with that in a meaningful way. Uh, when my mom died when I was 11 years old, I intimately can relate with the anger that comes from losing somebody that's so dear and so close to you. It's really like pouring gasoline on an already raging fire, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, those those kinds of things, like what happened to you and with my brother, it's just, it's horrific because it's so unfair. It's like, why do these kinds of things happen to us? And for any person to cope with something like that in life is such a struggle. But when you don't have any resiliency left to begin with, how are you supposed to deal with that? You know, and, and all that we knew how to do, what you know, or I I should say for myself, all that I knew how to do at that point to alleviate any kind of pain was to drink. Mm. That was the best I knew Mm. how to do. And, you know, that's partially my own fault. You know, I I do think I had some exposure to other things, but that was what would work. That's the only thing that I knew that really was working. And that's what I went to. That was my MO. Our brains learn very, very quickly what works and what doesn't, what provides relief and what doesn't. And so when we're faced with such extreme and severe trauma and overwhelming pain and emotion, our brains are telling us to go to what works. And that's a, that's a biological phenomenon that, uh, uh, that we experience, especially when we're in a vacuum where we don't have these other tools, we don't have healthy coping mechanisms and we don't have, you know, haven't engaged in any meaningful work to build up this healthy, these more healthier coping mechanisms. Right. And so I don't, I look back and I think, yeah, I don't judge myself any longer or shame myself any longer for engaging in that. I knew uh, it, it, I don't, I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Right. Right. Like I don't. Worse. Right. I try to tell people that all the time. The 
pain that we're self-medicating from, there are worse things that we could even do to ourselves. And so taking a drink or a drug, and, and there's actually a great study that has done by, it was started by Kaiser actually, because they started to look at all their patients who were, you know, dying of chronic terminal illnesses. And they said like, we, you know, we need to figure this out. We've got to get to the root of this because it's going to save us money if we can figure out how to keep people from these like very expensive, chronic, long-term illnesses because it's so expensive to treat. And what they found that all these patients had in common was adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's called the ACEs study. And since then, every other major insurance carrier has replicated the study to find the same results. I mean, we're, we still need to get them behind actually treating it appropriately. But the truth is, is the type of trauma that we've experienced, having something else outside of us to like, you know, self-medicate can prevent actually a lot of harm that we would have, our bodies would have done to ourselves. So, and you don't know, it's like, you know, could the alcohol have been worse my liver and this and that? It's not the same for everybody, but I, I try to just help people understand that even though it turned destructive, the idea of medicating, it, it, it's like a self-preservation that our brain goes into. And a lot of this, like you said, biologically our brain just learns how to do these things to adapt and that's the best that we understand how to do and unfortunately it's different than with somebody who gets sick with something else like cancer right where everyone just feels really bad for you because once you're inebriated and you're acting all sideways it like hurts people and they they take it personally like you are doing this and it's very hard to separate out um, that your ism or your disease or your addiction is responsible when it feels like you're doing this to me. Absolutely. And we talk about ACEs all the time on this show for good reason, because us folks in recovery and long-term recovery, and we're riddled with it in our histories. And it is, it is extremely and exceedingly common for uh, uh, alcoholics, addicts, and then ultimately, uh, if uh, uh, God willing, people in long-term recovery to have these adverse childhood experiences. And the more we have, the more likely we are to struggle with substance abuse issues, right? Um, Again, he's another chronic terminal illness, so just the same as, as those other ones. So we're literally in the same category as, as everybody else. So you're in Hollywood, uh, you're in West Hollywood, and you go to a, uh, you go to a 12 step meeting and you know, um, you're not like those people. Um, <laughs> and, and I can, I can so relate to that because I remember going to my first meeting after a, uh, a DWI and thinking, uh, and, and thinking, I'm glad these people have this program because they freaking need it. <laughs> okay. Cause y'all need it. And I think it's great. And I think it's great. You have your cute little higher power cause you probably need that too. Right. <laughs> and I think that's tremendous for you people. I was um, like, they're all holding hands and chanting stuff. <laughs> like this is a cult. I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. I'm out of here. I'm never going back. That's right. And I learned very quickly. I learned it in, uh, I had to go to treatment when I was 15. So I, I, I realized very quickly what folks want to hear. Right. So I was very quickly able to wax poetic about 
uh, steps and, and, and recovery principles that I had no interest in working or integrating into my life, right? Uh, and so uh, that uh, you learn to play the proverbial, I learned to play the proverbial game. Tell me how your, tell me how things progress for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I had anything crazy. Like I just, uh, you know, I, when people say like I'm a low bottom drunk or high bottom drunk, I would probably put myself in the category of the high bottom drunk because I really didn't, I didn't go to jail. I, didn't, I got pulled over three times under the influence in Los Angeles. But I mean, I don't know if anybody knows this, but the LA cops have a lot more <laughs> pressing problems than dealing with drunk drivers. Um, so I did get let off a couple times when I definitely should not have. But again, I was a highly functioning alcoholic. Like I, at that point, by the, by the last year of my drinking, I was drinking to get out of bed. I had a bottle in my bed. I had a bottle in my shower. Um, I was drinking all throughout the day. So my baseline was very high. And that's one of the yets, right? It's as, yes. as long as I'm not drinking every morning. But I was. I was drinking every morning. Yeah. Um, to be able to be normal. Um, and at that point, you know, I was using Adderall on a re regular basis too, just to support my drinking. Anything else that I did was always to support my drinking. I learned how to fashion all these other substances to support my drinking. Um, but again, you know, I, I definitely was messing up at work. I had a lot of problems with friends. Um, I think I, I was not able to be financially stable, although I had a great job. I just couldn't manage money. And I ultimately, I just went on a bender. I was supposed to, I had been splitting my time between New York and LA for my job. Uh, I'd be in New York for two or three months, which, and uh, LA for two or three months at a time. And when I went to New York, I mean, talk about the anonymity that I first felt going to Boulder. Then I moved to LA and I was like, ah, oh, this is even better. And then the Mecca of New York, where it's like, I could be a different person, any part of town I went to, any different group of friends that I had. And so I was supposed to move out there. Um, and the date was June 6th of 2011. And the Wednesday night before, that was a Monday. So the Wednesday night before my friends had said, hey, let's go out and have a couple drinks. Like, we're not gonna get to see you that much. Like we got to go out and have fun. And I had had some work events. I was working in PR over the weekend. So they're like, we'll just have a couple of drinks, whatever. So I go out to drinks and then my friends had put uh, some time release Adderall in my drink. When I didn't see it, they like spiked my drink and they were like, well, now you're going to be up all night anyway. So let's go do something fun. And that turned into, you know, multiple days of being awake and taking anything that came at me and you know, not eating, not sleeping. And by the time Sunday rolled around and I actually realized what day and time it was, which obviously you can tell my mind was not in the most uh, clear state. Um, I realized that I was supposed to move across the country the next day and I hadn't packed a thing. Uh, I wasn't prepared. Uh, and, and so you know, lo and behold, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to bed that night. I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't sleep. And I just was like wrecked. And, and I don't know what exactly happened, but I was in a hotel on the Sunset Strip and it was like a voice from outside kind of came to me and said, 
you know, God wants more for you in your life than this. Mm -hmm. And it was like, for some reason, I just heard it, you know, and it it really resonated with me. And I kind of thought back to, you know, the girl that I was as a child and how, you know, what kind of an achiever I was and how I was able to accomplish my goals and that I had all these dreams to be, you know, a politician, a lawyer, uh, you know, I wanted to be the president at one point and it's like, you know, what happened? You're like a barely functioning PR lackey at 25. Like any, you can't, everything that I had tried to do, I tried to have a little brief stint in stand-up comedy. I couldn't follow through with that. I tried to, you know, be a screenwriter. I couldn't follow through with that. So it was like, all of a sudden, it just like, I could see everything clearly that I had been in denial about for so long. I had seen, I started to see my part in the friendships that I had lost instead of, you know, the position that I held for so long that they were messed up and I was right and they were wrong. And it's, it's just like something clicked for me that this wasn't working anymore. And I realized that I wasn't going to stop because my, my using just continued to progress into harder drugs, more time using, more liquor, like more, more, more. And in my life, I was living it less and less. You had a moment of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. It was It literally the clouds parted too. And it was like, I still remember it. It was an overcast day in LA. They have like the June gloom where it's like really foggy every day. And it was one of those days. And, uh, and then I saw like the sun part and the beams come down. And I just was like, everything just kind of lined up. And I knew I needed help. And luckily... I did have a friend who was sober and in the program and she'd been sober, I think about five years at that point. And I had remembered seeing her at a music festival a couple of years before that. And her saying to me then like, Hey, if you ever want help with your drinking, like I'm here for you. And I was like, uh, screw you. You are <laughs> so rude. And I'm never talking to you again. And this is one of my best friends from high school. And so I literally ignored her for a couple of years, but it was, I think it was part of the way she said it because I, I know she wasn't judging me, even though that was my reaction. And she's the first person I thought of. And I was like, I need help. I I can't do this anymore. And you know, she, she dropped everything in her life. And for the next three days, she, all she did was try to get me help. And she landed me um, in a treatment program in Utah. And I miraculously went through with it and uh, have been sober ever since. One of the things that strikes me as a part of the progression of your disease is the lack of consequences actually really in in large part worked against you because it allowed for this, the the, the amount and, and the frequency of your drinking to really uh, ramp up in a vacuum of consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and without having, you know, you know, sort of this, you know, reality check slamming you in the face, um, you know, it does allow for, you know, this, uh, the drinking to, to continue, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it didn't, it didn't, right? Because I still was 27 when I made that decision to get sober. So I still, you know, was in my 20s. Um, luckily, you know, I hadn't had a family yet or, Uh, of my own yet. And I hadn't, you know, had landed my career job, my dream job. And so I feel really fortunate because um, I still was 
younger and I did recognize uh, somewhat at least that things could get a lot worse because since the first time I had decided that I was fine and I wasn't as bad as these people, things had gotten a lot worse, mm. even though um, not all of it was on the outside. I think most of it was actually internal. Mm -hmm. I just did not feel good about myself. I was not, uh, I wasn't living the life that I had in, set out to live. And I, it was like my life was living me, you know? And that's, I think, ultimately what, what was the truth that I somehow landed on at the end of this bender was like, what am I doing? And I'm glad that for me, that was my moment of clarity because I know that if that, if it hadn't ended there, then the next thing would have been being in a jail cell or a hospital bed or on trial for killing someone else. I mean, I can't even imagine how much worse it could have gone. I mean, a couple of days before I got, um, before I ended up getting sober, I had pulled out onto the Sunset Strip with an uh, open cup of Jack Daniels, uh, went the wrong way, pulling into heavy traffic on the Sunset Strip. It's like, I could have killed someone. And I got pulled over and let off for right. doing that. Right. I got a ticket for going the wrong way on a one-way street with an open container sitting next to me. And God bless them. I, I hope, that, you know, LAPD, you have the hardest job. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, but, but it's like, I am so grateful all the time that my consequences weren't worse and that I was able to recognize it earlier. And that's the one thing that I want to say for a lot of people is that you don't have to let it get that far to get help. Because if you're on that trajectory, that's where it's going. That's the inevitability of it. And it's not worth holding on to it when there's so much more to gain if you're willing to let that, that one comfort item go. I'm a firm, yes. Out I'm of a, a drink at, in, without drinking. Everything that benefits you by drinking or using, you can get in a healthier lasting way instead of that temporary fix that ends up giving you all these worse consequences you can achieve everything you want from a drink without it in recovery i'm a firm believer that your bottom is when you stop digging right and <laughs> it, it, there's high bottom uh, it, it, we've interviewed so many amazing people on this podcast and uh, the bottoms are all over the map and it's inconsequential in terms of what one person's bottom in bottom is. Sometimes it's consequence laden. Sometimes it's in prison. Sometimes it's an emotional hell, right? And sometimes it's a combination of the two, right? Sometimes it's in lost relationships or you know lost you know um, um, jobs or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Uh, everybody's bottom is different. And I really believe that, you know, when we have these, these moments of clarity, I, I had them before I got sober long-term, before long-term sobriety was able to really take hold for me. I had windows of opportunity where there was a moment of clarity, right? I had those and I didn't take advantage of them. I let them go. Because yeah. I wasn't ready or because the, it, for whatever reason, who knows? I don't know. You know, I, 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 yeah, I don't know when I, why I ended up, you know, really 
getting honest with myself. I can't explain that. Like I think you were relating, Holly. We can't explain why we experienced this really powerful, true moment of clarity and self-honesty around our actions, our behaviors, and what our disease is doing to us. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. But the reality is, if we're fortunate enough to have that experience, then we can use that to move forward in a a way that allows us to start to get better, right? And I could distinctly remember, you know, I had this treatment experience when I was 15. I waxed poetic about steps. I didn't want to work. Had no intention. I mean, I had just like found this thing, like like I'm going to get sober. That's hilarious. You people are hilarious. Uh, (laughs) And and I remember them passing around the coin and everybody saying, you're going to stay sober forever, Charlie. Chuckles. You're going to stay sober forever. Uh-huh. And the head treatment counselor, Eileen, who I didn't even think was paying attention, right? Uh, to me, she seemed like she was 162, you know? And she takes the coin. She looks at me in the face and says, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to this group. You will use again, and it will probably kill you. And then she walks out the room, right? And that's what my moments of clarity consisted of was the 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 voice of Eileen the head treatment counselor saying you're lying to yourself you're lying to this group you're gonna use again and it's gonna kill you you know and um um, I could be grateful for like the friend that you had right that mentioned if you ever want help right Mm-hmm. Um, at the time it, it it's, it's, uh, it's not something I'm interested in, but in my moment of need and my moment of clarity and that true self honesty, those are the people that we reach out to mm-hmm. in order to get better. What was that treatment experience like for you? Um, it was great. You know, my expectation of going to treatment was that I was going to quit drinking for a couple months and I was going to get really healthy, get in great shape, eat good food. And then I would be able to go back and drink like a lady. Um, so I committed, I was like, it's gonna be like 28 days, like that rehab movie. And uh, <laughs> Sandra Bullock, yeah. Uh, and so I got there and, uh, you know, it took me about 30 days just to clear the fog, mm-hmm. which I was very surprised about. Like, as it was lifting, I was just like, I mean, it was very humbling to realize how, messed up my head was because I didn't recognize that, you know, I just was too busy just going through all the motions. And so when about 25 days into it, they're like, yeah, we're going to recommend that you stay for another 30 days. And And I was like, oh, but they, I had started to just hear some like little nuggets of truth. And, you know, I'm again, because I kind of chose this, I wasn't like railroaded into treatment. Like I know a lot of um, other people have had that experience of being forced into it. I, I opted into it. And so I just decided in that moment, I was like, if I'm going to do this sobriety thing, I'm going to do what they're telling me to do. Hmm. Because if I do everything that they're saying, when it doesn't work for me, I never have to do this again. That was fully what I was convinced of. So I was like, okay, I'll say another 30 days. And that's when like the real work started for me because I was finally mentally more clear. So I could start doing some more of the work. And I'm grateful to the place where my friend Diana sent me because 
they did really deep clinical work and that is not the case with every treatment center. A lot of treatment centers are just kind of spin dries or they'll teach you good stuff about 12 steps and they'll give you really good foundational kind of education. Um, but this was one that had a clinical emphasis. So I got to do a lot of my own personal therapy work and start digging into some of those more core issues. I still did not do any of my deep childhood trauma work. And that's important to say because I was in of the mindset of like, I'm going to do everything they're telling me to do. I'm going to do everything that comes up. I'm going to take all the suggestions. I started to, you know, attend meetings and I heard stuff like that. And I started to get these little, you know, tidbits that were sinking in, like, listen for the similarities and not the differences. And, you know, I sat in the back of all the meetings with my hands down for the first like 30 days or so of like, oh, I hope nobody knows me, you know. And then gradually I started to let some of those truths that I was hearing sink in. And, uh, and I started to get better. I started to feel better uh, in a lot of ways. And I started to get relief from doing some of this inner work that I was doing um, at the program. And so by the time the end of my treatment experience was rolling around, I was like, you know, they're telling me I should keep staying sober for a while. Um, I was like, all right, well, I'll just smoke weed and I just won't drink and that'll be fine. I'll do that for like a year or so. And they're like, we just think you should probably not use substances at all. <laughs> I was like, okay, for one year, I will not use any kind of mind altering substances. I had my little cry over it. I had my little grief moment. Um, but I was like, just for one year. And if things aren't better, and if this isn't great, then I can always go back and I never have to try being sober again. Um, but the truth is, is that everything did start getting so much better that I just kind of wanted to keep it going. And uh, and so I took all the suggestions and I made it to a year and we had done this fun little thing where you were supposed to write a letter while you were in treatment to yourself at one year sober. And I, I stayed, I did sober living, which they recommended for me. Um, I did the aftercare. So I did regular groups and I continued, continued my edu uh, individual therapy. And the truth is, is it was in a 12 step meeting around the time I was nine months sober that I heard somebody talk about their childhood trauma mm. and they talked about it so openly in front of like you know over a hundred people mm. and they just were like you know yeah this happened to me and this is something I, I have to work on in my recovery and I was like and something just clicked for me where it was like the bravery of that person and seeing how easy it was for them to just talk about something that was similar that had happened to me it like unlocked it from my subconscious. It was almost like that person had given me the gift of, of seeing that I might be able to deal with this horrific thing that happened to me in my childhood that I essentially was killing myself over because it was more painful to think about that situation than it would have been to just die. That's how my psyche handled the situation, but I saw someone else talk about it and it, it freed me to be able to think maybe I can address it. And I'll tell you, when that memory resurfaced in my consciousness, my instant reaction was to repress it. And that's how the brain works. It's like it starts kind of knocking up there, right? And, and once I saw it consciously, it was almost like I could see that I had been pushing it down for so many years of my life because as a child when things that are horrific happen to you, you can't 
process them. You can't understand it. Like, you know, it's bad, you know, it's wrong, but you don't know what to do with it. And you don't think you can share it. And so, you know, that, that freed me. And I had learned enough. I had enough of a foundation in my recovery at that point to know that my secrets were going to keep me sick. And if I didn't share this with another person, I was likely to drink again. And things had gotten so much better, again, and internally and the way I felt and the way I was approaching life had already improved so much that I did not want to drink again. And at least I wanted to have the choice in whether or not I was going to drink again. So it was probably the hardest words I've had to utter to anybody, but I told my sponsor and I was grateful. I had a sponsor who I trusted and who I'd already been working the steps with and um, who felt like family to me. And probably the most honest woman I had ever seen. That's what really attracted me to her. She just was like so real and transparent. And so I told her and it was very hard to do, but it was very freeing. And then she encouraged me to share it with my individual therapist, which I did. And the second time I talked about it, it was a lot easier than the first. Mm -hmm. And now every time that I've had to go through it or talk about it, Every time that I speak about it, it gets easier and easier. And now it's become a useful tool for me to do, to be able to have, give someone else the gift that was given to me of letting them see that this thing that almost killed me now doesn't only not have any power to harm me, but it actually can help other people. So I was able to transform that using the tools of the program uh, and recovery into from my worst thing that had ever happened into a gift for someone else to help them. And it all started with somebody in a 12 step meeting, giving you permission to be vulnerable. Right. Without knowing it like that. I don't know that that was their intention that they were just sharing their experience, strength and hope. And that's what I needed to hear. And often we don't know when our stories will give somebody else permission to be vulnerable, to be honest, to take that next step that they might be afraid of or that they didn't know they needed to take. Mm -hmm. right? So often we don't know when our stories and what we share in an authentic and vulnerable way really speak to somebody. That's not up to me. That's up to my higher power. That's up to the God of my understanding. I, I'm responsible for, for sharing my story, my my experience, strength, and hope, right? In my higher power, it gets to decide who, where that lands and who that helps and who that, every once in a while, I, you know, I get to hear it as, as a host of a podcast, right? But more often I don't, and, and, and that's okay because that's the way this thing works and how powerful that is to be able to take such a traumatic experience and be able to transform that into a gift that you can give in your recovery and again give others permission to be authentic and vulnerable in their own experiences i can't tell you how transformative it was for me when i i went to hazelden and i'm so grateful for that because in parallel to working the 12 steps i also worked with a therapist and went through a, a process of working through that trauma using EMDR and it's a process I hadn't experienced before. It was perfect for me. It was mm -hmm. transformational for me and working that in parallel for me was really, really transformational to be able to get through that trauma that I was really stuck in mm -hmm. 
and that was keeping me stuck and keeping me sick, as well as being able to work through the 12 steps. Uh, that was the combination that, that was like the secret code, right, for me. And so yeah, I think it's so great that you experienced that yourself because I think the more people that hear this and understand that, you know, we can use multiple avenues and we can have multiple, uh, uh, we can have, we can use multiple approaches to get well. Yeah, we should. We should try everything, right? We, that's what we always say in my program is like, let's throw everything at the wall and just see what sticks. Yeah, I like that. So tell me then, you're a year sober and I love the, I'm just going to try it. And if it doesn't work, I can go back to my old life. It's fine. Because early in my recovery, I remember listening to Joe and Charlie uh, mm-hmm. uh, speak. And I love Joe and Charlie. I, I should say Joe and Chuckles now, Holly. Obviously. Yeah. obviously. <laughs> But they would always repeat over and over like, hey, don't judge the process, judge the result. And they would say that over and over and over again. And so that's what I did. I just said, all right, fine. I'm going to give this everything I have. And if it doesn't work, if I don't get better, if I don't like my life after I'm done doing this thing, then fine. I can go back to the old. I know what that's like. I know that. Right. So yeah, it's always there. That's not changing. That's not going anywhere. But the truth is, is the more work you're going to put in and it is kind of like a nose down process. Right. And there, you know, in one of the books I like to read for recovery, it talks about the spiritual experience and that we kind of have this idea that it's going to like be like, poof, you're good. You're cured. Everything's great. But it's not usually like that for most people. It's like you got your head down you're desperate enough to just listen to what people are telling you to do. And you just are putting one foot in front of the other. It's one day at a time doing the next right thing. And then all of a sudden you, you stop and, or something happens in your life where it, you make this comparison and then it really puts things in perspective. And you're like, wow, I just handled that way differently than I would have a year ago. And I feel much better. Like I, I'm, I'm not a miserable person about that. You know, like I used to, you know, if somebody, you know, cut me off on the road, I still have a little bit of road rage. So that's not <laughs> the best example. Um, but it's like, it doesn't have to ruin my whole day. I don't have to, you know, one little things used to just set me off because I had no resiliency. So any little thing was just going to set me over the edge and ruin my day. And everybody was out to get me. And it's like, I, I just get to think about things differently these days and I, I get to be more focused on, you know, like we were talking about what I can give, how I can contribute, how I can help people instead of being like, oh, what's in it for me? Why is everybody, you know, why does everybody get that? And I never get anything. And just instead of being so inwardly focused on like what I'm getting or not getting or, you know, who's looking at me or not looking at me. It's more like, what can I do for other people? And, and that's, you know, what recovery is really given to me is that I understood that I got to choose my thoughts and I, I get to choose whether or not I want to take a drink and I get to choose the behaviors and that that wasn't just automatic, which is what it felt like for me before. And that's where I got to choose these coping skills that were much better for me and much healthier and would yield the results that I wanted. And after doing enough of those things and putting enough in a row, all of a sudden my life was really great. And that letter that I had written to myself in rehab, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I totally sold myself short. I just wanted to be happy. Like, Oh my gosh, now I've got this and I've got this back. And 
you know, I worked out, this was a, a really tough situation, you know, in early recovery, my car almost got repossessed, I had no job, and all these things just kept working out for me, and because I just kept at it, and, and I think that's one of the main things I always tell people that I learned in recovery is, you know, before I got sober, I would come up to an obstacle, and I would just give up. I was like, and, and again, that's not how I was wired when I was younger, and in recovery, I've learned not only to um, accept challenges or obstacles, but also embrace them yeah. and know that they can be used to help me uh, be the person that I want to be and achieve the means that I want and that I can be stronger for overcoming obstacles. Um, you know, part of my conception of a higher power that I built in early recovery, um, because I got to start from scratch, included um, Ganesh or Ganesha, um, which is, you know, the Lord of obstacles. And that is not, uh, and a lot of people think of that God as being like a, a, a remover of obstacles. So that's what a lot of people will pray to Ganesh for is to take away obstacles. But Ganesh is also the placer of obstacles. And when you think about it that way, it's, there are things that are put in our lives to challenge us, to help us grow and to test our character. And, and, and you know, that's similarly how we build our muscles, like, right? We lift weights and we rip our muscles apart so they can be built stronger. And so the way that I think about things is so much different in, in a way that serves me today. And now I know I can achieve anything. And that's, you know, how I was able to, as a single mother, uh, in grad school, build a program that's, you know, ends up, has ended up being wildly successful that helps so many women is because recovery has shown me that I can do anything. As long as I can put one foot in front of the other, do the next right thing and focus on helping other people. I, I am in love with the, <clears throat> hey, if I would have you know, laid down the things that I wanted to get out of recovery on the front end of this, you know, um, and looking back a year later or two years later or three years later and realizing, you know, I would have sold myself uh, miles and miles short, right? And I was just trying not to get divorced when I went into, you know, treatment, right? Uh, that's it. That's all I wanted, you know, and then like you uh, experienced, um, uh, started to, things started to click and then I, you put that nose down and I just, you know, I'm going to do this thing to the best of my ability and see what happens. That's it. I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to give it everything I've got, right? And work through that. You talked a little bit about your higher power. I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, for me, I, I distinctly remember working through into step three, you know, uh, really, you know, step one for me was done inside of a treatment counselor's office, crying like a baby, not expecting it, by the way, not expecting to get honest with this woman about everything, but I did. But step two and three was sort of like, I hated God. Like I, God took my mom away, right? Like, and I had to, I had to wipe the slate clean and just start, you know, doing things that didn't make sense. And then, it, you know, on the back end, it started to, you know, work. And I started, I changed based on, you know, I'm, I'm getting on my knees every morning, praying to a God that I don't understand and I'm changing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how was the, how did you develop and how did the relationship with your higher power develop based on, you know, sort of where you came from and, and, and the, all of that you experienced before? 
When I got sober, I just decided because of the suggestions I had heard of in the rooms is like, just start from scratch, build your own conception of a higher power. And I love that idea. And I do think I kind of always, you know, I grew up in church, always had an idea of God, but I, I wanted to scratch kind of my notion of beard man in the sky. And so I just listened. I started to listen to what other people suggested. And I'll never forget, there was this old timer in the rooms and he said, I don't know about all this God business, but I do believe in the Native American idea of great spirit in the Star Wars concept of the force. And I was like, yes, I can get behind the force. And I agree. That's very much how I feel and um, that God is everything, including us. And we're all connected. And I just started by identifying like, you know, what I thought were truths of, of this world and of uh, a power greater than myself and I built it from there and you know today it is uh, a divinity that's in all of us that we're all connected to one another and you know that's kind of what karma is is whatever I am putting out there is going to come back to me including things from my subconscious that I'm going to put out to challenge me and help me grow um, that I'm I'm actually much more uh, in control of the things that I'm going to be seeing in my life than what I thought when I was growing up. I kind of thought that I had no control and everything was happening to me. So I needed to control these small pieces to feel like I had something. And now I kind of have a sense that everything that's happening it, that comes into my path and um, whether it's, you know, we want to label it good or bad, it can all be used for good. And that I have the ability to move every, through everything um, because the, ultimately the universe does want what's best for me and, and for everyone. Absolutely beautiful. Your treatment center that you run now, Women Only, which I think is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Talk just a second about that, the approach that you, get, that you use in this in your in your treatment center yeah absolutely so um women's recovery we are an outpatient program which i love because our focus really is to help people before they hit rock bottom and of course we can help people who have been there and back too but um, we want to be able to help people get treatment before they lose their job before they have to leave their families so we really can help people before they lose everything and they can still stay at home with their kids with their husbands with their wives whoever they live with um, and we can help them start to chip away at some of those underlying issues um, we equally treat substance abuse mental health and trauma mm. and as you can tell from my story you know the trauma piece was integral and so we really try to put an emphasis on that and being at the forefront of you know trauma and trauma work in our industry, uh, it's it's very important to us that we're addressing that piece and giving people long-term solutions. Because as you know, as I mentioned here, um, a lot of the stuff that I needed to address didn't actually come up when I was in treatment, but because I had had such a good foundation, um, I knew what I needed to do when it came up. So that is very much a big part of uh, of our, I think, our focus and emphasis in our program. I like the intervention element, right, that you guys employ in terms of being able to, uh, you know, uh, use this approach to intervene a little bit earlier in the progression. Before we close, the single greatest piece of advice you got in recovery? Oh, wow. 
Um, I think the, I mean, I've gotten so many great ones. That's really hard to nail it down. <laughs> but I guess the, um, I guess the, the most important thing that I heard, which was, is really simple is just to do the next right thing. Because I think that that's where I always got stopped up before was like, everything seemed so big and overwhelming that it just shut me down and paralyzed me. But when I realized I didn't have to have it all figured out, I didn't have to, you know, look a thousand miles down the road to know how to do things. All I needed to do was put one foot in front of the other and that everything else would work out. Uh, that, that gave me the, the peace and the confidence to move forward and know that I didn't have to do it perfectly. I didn't have to have it all figured out. I just had to keep showing up and just doing what I knew was right in front of me. And that has taken me miles. Which allows us to stay in the moment, stay in the day, stay in the now, which really fits really well with that one day at a time and then doing that next right thing. And the rest of it really does, in fact, take care of itself. The next right thing will be to say that everything that Holly talked about in terms of her recovery center will all be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, check the show notes. It will all be there. Holly's contact information will be there as well. So you can reach out to Holly. Holly, thank you so much for being on the Way Out podcast and have a tremendous rest of your day. Thank you, Chuckles. You're awesome. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody in Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.